and welcome to Soberholic Podcast. This show is designed to address topics that will encourage, equip, and inspire you to explore life's most difficult topics and overcome your biggest challenges. Today, your hosts, Roger and Jason, will share from their own experience how you can find hope and healing in recovery. Welcome to another episode of Soberholic Podcast. I'm here not in studio. We're all in our separate studios with Roger Bowes and our guest today, Paul Pippen, who is a fellow podcaster that we have gotten to know over the last few months and, and had a couple of correspondence with, and we decided to have him on the show. Hello, Paul. I'm doing good. It's good to be here. It's good to finally uh, be on this side of the mic with you guys. I'm always on the other side of the uh, speakers, driving in the car and listening, but uh, it's good to finally be face-to-face-ish. Ish. <laughs> That's yeah, this as good as it gets right now. Yeah. Yes. So, Which, so in my case is good because most people, it's nice to have a buffer and a barrier. You can just push, oops, we disconnected, whatever. It's a good getaway. Right. Well, a buddy of mine always told me I had a, um, I, I didn't have a, I had a face for radio. Face for radio. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I get it. <laughs> so um, what, what's the name of your podcast? My podcast is the Mess It Up podcast. And we try to take messes, turn them into messages every week. Uh, so uh, we're on all the normal places, iTunes and uh, SoundCloud, Spotify. You can even do it on your Amazon device, which I thought was so cool when that worked. Um, uh, so yeah, just check out Mess It Up uh, podcast, and that's where you can find us turning messes into messages every week. Cool. How long have you been doing it now? Uh, we just recorded today. I recorded show 106. Uh, so once a week, that's a fuzz over two years. The actual two-year anniversary is tomorrow um, But uh, as we record this. Um, but uh, yeah, two years I've been doing that. I used to do a video show called Jesus and Java, where I would get together with people and we'd just I have a conversation much like it was a, you were overhearing us talking in uh, Starbucks and we'd just drink coffee and, uh, and talk about Jesus. But it got to be too much of a hassle doing all the video because people have to get dressed up and they want to put makeup on and you got to have right camera angles and lighting. And so I, I ditched the cameras and just went with microphones. So uh, podcasting now uh, on this one for two years. And then I do a blog called The Minister of Mocha, which you can find at ministerofmocha.com. Uh, and I've been doing that now for just over five years, uh, writing uh, once a week, just a little blast of hope to uh, start your week off um, on the right, hopefully on the right path. Very cool. So you are uh, in recovery yourself. Um, let's just kind of just walk us through the highlights of your recovery testimony, um, starting at the beginning. So um, my recovery journey is uh, like a lot of people. Um, you know, you always hear that people came to get someone off their back and I did that. I came to get someone off my back, uh, in 2001, I, well, in 2000, I was arrested, uh, for, uh, some misdemeanors and felonies, uh, in and around molestation of my stepdaughter. And so I spent some time in prison for that. When I got home, uh, the church that I had gone to for years said, you know, we'd rather have you go somewhere else. We're just not comfortable with you being here. So we started church hopping. And on Easter Sunday, we wound up at a church uh, in our town of Ridgecrest that fit. Uh, so we kept on going. And by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, they asked me to to share my testimony about uh, what I was thankful for. And I remember walking into the pastor's office and he was an older pastor. He's probably uh, late sixties. It was just, it was his last pastor before he retired. 
And I said, uh, well, Pastor Glenn, what do you want me to say? You know my story. And he said, whatever God wants, I'm fine with. I don't care. And I was like, well, great. That really helps a lot. I'm going to go in front of several hundred people and face this. Now, I knew because when I was arrested, I was uh, a local teacher. I was a coach of the soccer team at the high school. So I was front page news in our small town for about a week. So I knew there was no getting around. People knew my story already. So that was, in some ways, that's a blessing for me. A lot of times people say, why do you just jump out and say, you know, your dirty laundry so fast? Like, it was printed in the newspaper. Everybody knows it. So I'm not getting away from it. And hiding it just makes it worse. So I figure if I come out and tell everybody the facts that they know and they read, then they can just trust that the rest of what I'm telling them is, is genuine as well. So anyhow, I stroll up onto the stage um, of our church. And in our town, a church of a couple hundred is a big church. And so they were doing a combined service where they had our Spanish service, our Saturday night service, and both Sunday services all crammed into one auditorium. So there's about five, 600 people there. And I dumped my guts and waited for people to get up and boo or whatever. And they didn't. They just, they sat there and said, thanks. And afterwards, a guy came up to me that had been bothering me. He's like, you need to come to Celebrate Recovery. And so this was the guy who was the ministry leader. uh, And uh, he was missing a tooth. He was a beefy former Marine. He worked in the water reclamation department uh, for the sewer of our city. So a lot of times he smelled like what he worked with. Hmm. And I was just like, dude, get away from me. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't need your stupid group. Just leave me alone. Well, he kept on harassing me uh, all through the month of December and Christmas. So finally, January rolls around. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to this guy's group, get him off my back, shut him up and be done with this. So that was the first week of January of 2003. And uh, I have... Um, I've not missed any Celebrate Recovery meetings. Well, I've missed probably a total of four Celebrate Recovery meetings since then um, in that time where I've been able to go to a meeting. Uh, so um, it, it made a huge difference. I found out that uh, those people weren't what I, I expected, just a bunch of him, a bunch of burnout meth heads uh, that were just, you know, teeth were optional kind of thing. Yeah. And when I walked by, I honestly walked past that they had just, the church had bought this big 60,000 foot square foot office building that they were converting into offices, Sunday school rooms and church. And I walked past a meeting of the board or something, but it was all people who were well-dressed and uh, well-kept and I couldn't find the CR thing. So I went back to go ask him and then I see that dude who invited me up at the front. And I was like, this is CR. Wow. Okay. I fit in. And so uh, quickly uh, because of my background in teaching and whatnot, quickly uh, got involved with a step study, eventually uh, stepped into leadership. And then after about a year and a half uh, of being there, uh, RM, the guy who invited me uh, moved. And uh, so all of a sudden now I'm the M for this Celebrate Recovery group and have been um, working as an M in Celebrate Recovery. Sometimes I'm a T, I'm an E, I'm an A and an M. <laughs> when we, we just started up about five years ago at a new church in town. And for a while I was the one man band. And I know they say you shouldn't do that, but in a small town, sometimes that's just what you have to do. But uh, honestly, if my wife and I weren't involved with Celebrate Recovery, we probably wouldn't have just celebrated 25 years of marriage about two weeks ago. Um, it would have been uh, a different story. And my stepdaughter, who was my victim, will tell you that uh, I'm a completely different guy, that the guy 
who abused her doesn't exist anymore. He's gone. And that uh, Celebrate Recovery and Jesus Christ are the reasons that uh, not only is she my daughter, not my stepdaughter, she, her, her kids are my grandkids and have no idea what happened with Papa 20 years ago. That's awesome. So you, you, um, from if I put this together right, and I, I'm horrible at this, but that means that your wife stayed with you the whole time you were locked up. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Uh, when I got arrested, everybody said this is going to ruin your life. And I sat down with my wife and I said, uh, this won't ruin our lives. This will dramatically change it. Now, I was, as most people in recovery are, uh, a master manipulator and liar. And so when I went in, I had painted a picture and she believed that I was innocent. And she thought that I took a deal with the DA to avoid a big scandal and running everybody's name through the mud. So I went in in June of 2001 and uh, on Christmas, she just kept on telling me what a great guy I was. I was going to be coming home in a little while. And I was just so awesome and and I couldn't take it anymore. And so I confessed uh, the day after Christmas uh, that no, I was that dirty scoundrel. And then I had to write letters to the 72 people who wrote letters on my behalf to the judge and tell them I lied to you. Mm. And I gave those people the option. I said, this is the last you'll hear from me. If you want to maintain our relationship, you contact me and I'll be happy to answer, but I won't pursue you because I don't want to put you through the hardship of making me, you know, saying, get out of my life. I'll just, I'll go. You can call me back. And probably 80% of those people, that was the last time I ever heard from them. And uh, growing up in a small town, those were people that I had gone to kindergarten with um, that I didn't hear from and, and haven't heard from now for 20 years. And uh, we were in each other's weddings and uh, all that. And I know that that's just, that's the price that I had to pay. Uh, I, I always tell people, if I cut off a finger, my finger doesn't care that I've changed my mind, that I've gone to church, that I've got a good job, that I'm a good guy. The finger doesn't come back. And these things that I threw away because I wanted to do what I wanted to do, that's just a natural consequence of doing stuff. God has restored my life. He's restored my ministry. He's restored my family. And by the grace of God, my best friend who was in both of my weddings uh, has in the last year come back into my life after a 20 year absence um, because he's seen a change. And, uh, but it's just, it's just one of those things that um, you don't always get your stuff back. And, And you know, Roger, I mean, sometimes things don't grow back. How, you know, your hand, it, yeah, it just doesn't grow back. I mean, perfect guy to use that analogy with. I was in there thinking, but I, cause Jason goes, here comes a hand joke. I know he was thinking it, but <laughs> I, I didn't know if you were prepared for it. <laughs> Always. So, yeah. We, we've had another guy that we're friends with on here who ha- has a podcast himself, but he struggles with sexual addiction And I know in his testimony, he actually makes this statement, something, I'll paraphrase it, but he said, I wish I would have been an alcoholic and not a sex addict because alcoholics were more accepted than a sex addict. Do you agree? I mean, I know not exactly, but do you agree with that statement? I I understand the sentiment of that completely because um, there are things that we're just not allowed to do that uh, not only are you allowed to do it, sometimes it's, it's celebrated. You know, when, when we have our CR Sunday, every Sunday, my church is gracious enough to allow us to take over the church and do CR Sunday. And what people want is they want a great story of redemption from a guy who was a drug addict. We love a good drug addict redemption story. An alcoholic story now is so, 
I hate to belittle, but it's, it's almost trite. It's like, okay, well, who was an alcoholic? You know, what else you got kind of thing. My particular offense is not there yet. It is, you know, when, when you lump the bad people together, it's murderers and rapists. Um, but uh, I, I was, for a long time, I, was, uh, I worked at a Starbucks and a small town Starbucks. Everybody knew me. I, I mean, the whole town knew me. Um, and some things happened where I left that job and I went to go get a job at the Home Depot with their manager was one of my daily customers. And so they were ready to hire me. And then when they did the background check, like, yeah, we can't hire you. And I had another friend who was working there. I was like, the guy I work with is literally a murderer. So I know murders and rapists are the worst, but I know that the offenders are worse. And honestly, that's too bad for me because what, what society is doing is trying to protect people. And I would rather that I get limited in what I do so that someone else is protected from someone else who is not safe for them to be around. So that's just a, a bullet that I'm willing to take. And my job and my ministry is to go out and show people a different way so that I can show them, yeah, I'm not going to be a recidivist. I'm not going to repeat this. I'm going to show you that people like me can go on and be productive members of society, can be, you know, I was on staff at our church uh, and stayed on staff until I quit so I could do volunteer ministry with prison fellowship. Um, and, you know, with areas in, that I choose to do ministry and I'm not allowed to be in certain positions just because of that past. And that's okay because I'm not doing it for the titles. I'm not doing it for the glory. I'm certainly not doing it for the money. I'm doing it to get the message out there. And the only way I can get my message out is if I get up and scream it. And if other people tell my message for me, they're probably not going to tell any of the good stuff. They'll tell the salacious details, but they won't tell the story of redemption. And that's, that's the part that I want people to know is that there is redemption beyond whatever um, happens in life. Have you, have you found it? Go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Uh, have you found, I remember you were talking about um, one of the churches that you went to early on um, before you started um, any kind of formal recovery. Have you found it that, a lot of churches lack a a process of um, of I can't think of the word now. Oh, I, I think a, a path to redemption is always um, something that I try to work with people on. And so, uh, you guys probably know this. You know, whatever your um, addiction is, you become people's person of choice to go to when they find something. So when somebody has an incident that involves any kind of sex crime, I'm the guy that gets called. And that's what I always tell them is, look, we need a path to redemption. If we don't make a path to redemption, people have no choice but to do what they know. And so, and working with prisoners in, in prison fellowship, I always tell people, I know that the, the, the prisons have to keep them as a number. And they don't always enjoy or appreciate the way that I treat the inmates because I treat them as human beings. I call them sir. Um, I, I, I treat them with respect because my fear, theory is that if a person comes out of something, whether it's an addiction or uh, some sort of behavior problem or prison or whatever it is, and there is no opportunity for them to succeed, then they'll, they'll quit trying to succeed in traditional ways. And they'll go to what they were good at before, which is the criminal activity or acting out or whatever it is. So I want people to know that they can do something more with their life than just go back to jail. Well, Paul, I know a lot of our listeners, um, you know, 
our listeners are, are really just in recovery. And sometimes they're in Celebrate Recovery. Sometimes they're in AA. Sometimes maybe they're on the fence, not anywhere yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this would really, this question is really geared for those who are in Celebrate Recovery, probably even more so to those who are leaders, as you mentioned, in Celebrate Recovery. Uh, I know this is a question I've heard many times throughout the years. And I'll try to frame it up good enough for you to be able to answer it. But all right, so within Celebrate Recovery, one thing that they offer, like many secular meetings do not, is childcare. Inside of CR meetings, they'll have a place to keep your children who usually learn the steps um, if they have that part of the program going. If not, they'll just simply do daycare. But it didn't change the fact that, all right, so if if you are if you have a CR group that has children there, but you're still trying to minister those who have sexual issues, tendencies, how, how do you navigate that? So that's a real fun one as the, uh, as the M. So I am the outgoing, gregarious, uh, you know, I'm the quintessential barista. I loved Starbucks because I got to talk and drink coffee and get paid all at the same time. Uh, so I'm the face of our CR. And I always tell people, look, I can't do anything with the childcare. I have to keep myself, make a very, complete and strict break on that. Now, it's not legally that I have to do that anymore, but the way that I've stayed successful is I have lived my life as though I'm still on probation, even though I've been off probation for 15 years uh, because those guidelines kept me safe and they keep everyone else safe. So, uh, my grandkids, I've never been to any of their plays, any of their spelling bees, any of their uh, sporting events, none of that. And it hurts their feelings But I know that even though I can, liberty for me is not doing what I want to or what I can do. It's the liberty to say, no, I'm not going to do that because it's better for somebody else if I don't. So I have uh, people that I'll put in charge of of doing the childcare, whether it's just the childcare for the youngins or if it's any of the pre-covery stuff like Celebration Place or the landing I just stay completely out of it. And it's really tough because I wear two hats with prison fellowship and celebrate recovery. And they've connected for angel tree parties. It's like, okay, here's this big thing. We want you to do it. You're the M do it. Hey, Oh, you're also with prison fellowship. Yeah. You've got to do angel tree. And I'm like, time out. I don't. And so I put my other people in charge of it. And, um, we had our first angel tree party this year. And my big question was, am I even going to go? And I just decided it was, it was public enough. And there was enough eyes to see where I was that I would stay there in the main building and just not participate in the activities. But typically that's what I told them is I said, there's a good chance I won't even come to the party because I don't want to cause more of a problem. And so, you know, you just have to be delicate about it. And for me, if it's a problem to someone, then I step back. I don't look at what's right. I look at what's best for the situation, what's best to move the ministry on, not just what, what do I have the right to do? Because I'm not that much of a, a goofy flag waver that I have to have every right that I'm entitled to. Um, I like to let everybody else have their rights as well. Yeah. Just because something is beneficial, it doesn't mean or permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial. Like Paul writes. Oh, look at him getting all holy on us. Oh, the, Dang the, it. Oh, 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, um, so you, you said that when you were, I guess when you were locked up, you sent letters out to those 72 people yes, and, and through that about 80% responded to you. So you started your recovery process, even in lockdown, not really even knowing anything about Celebrate Recovery. Did not know that I had, had 
was doing that. No, I knew nothing of cell recovery. Uh, I knew the standard. This is what AA is, is what NA is. Um, but being that I spent my time in a county lockup, uh, I was never even afforded uh, the opportunity to participate in something like a CR inside had it been available because it just, it wasn't in our county jails where, where I was locked up. Uh, it's in some county jails now, but where I was, it still is not something that they do because the prisoners and inmates, there are such short term, they don't want to get them involved in program. Um, so yeah, I started it and I actually started writing the outline of my story. Cause I thought, well, I need to tell my story uh, back then. And it's changed. Uh, basically, nothing that I wrote down when I was in wound up in the book that I eventually wrote. But yeah, I've been working on it without knowing that I was working on it because it was actually God working on me without me knowing that God was working on me um, in that process. And that was a, a huge, you know, when I go through and, and lead a step study, one of the questions that they ask is, you know, is it harder for you to forgive, you know, accept forgiveness from God, from yourself or from other people? And for me, it, it was a tricky thing because I was going through trying to get that forgiveness from people and I couldn't forgive myself. I was the, the last person to forgive me pretty much was me. And I, I just couldn't get past that because I couldn't see, I knew not only what I did, I knew what I didn't do and what went through my head and how I thought about it and how I lied and cheated and manipulated. And I knew how low I was, what I didn't realize was that out of the seven and a half billion people on the planet, I'm God's absolute favorite. And so is everybody else. You know, right. he loves all of us the most. And I didn't realize that. And when I finally got that light bulb, it didn't come on. It wasn't a switch. It was a dimmer. And that rheostat was at like one watt, <laughs> but there was a glow. And I started catching on to that. And I just kept on going and chasing that glow until it became a bright light. That's awesome because I think that's really where most of all of our recovery starts is just the glimmer of hope. It's not mm -hmm. like um, these epiphanies where it's just all come together and everything's great now. And I've seen that type of stuff at an altar where someone comes up and they get delivered from whatever they're struggling with. But for me, it, that's the reason we talk about in recovery a lot that it's a struggle. You know, yeah. there's still tendencies, there's still thoughts in our head. We go back to think about things that like they were decades ago and but we don't have to act on that we can take right. those captive and i i know that i have a lot of friends who are one steppers and you know you take that one step to accept christ and everything's good and so i had a friend tell me god god took away my desire for alcohol i was like that is great but you know alcohol wasn't your problem you were covering up a problem with that alcohol and you still got that problem and just because i got saved and jumped in the dunk tank at church i didn't stop reading my bible I didn't stop coming back to church. I have to keep, I have to keep doing it. And if you can get along in life with that, that's great. Amen to you and praise the Lord. But I, I'm not that good. <laughs> I need constant, constant work. Well, well, one of the things you talk about, you know, working through this, and I know you made the, you wrote the letters out as a way of asking for forgiveness or, or trying to make those amends. But I, I'm just going out on a limb here and just going to assume that those with that stepdaughter, um, the offender, was probably one of your hardest ones to make. Or I did not write a letter to her because I thought it would come off false. Um, I know she had heard everything that I said, and I had spent a long time. Um, I was a master manipulator, so I made everyone think that she was the bad person and I was the good person. So I called my wife the day after Christmas, and I confessed to her. And I said, tomorrow, I'm going to call you at such and such a time, and I want you to have 
our daughter over and I want her to be on the phone so that she can hear me confess to you exactly the same so she can know I'm not pulling any punches. I'm not trying to paint a better picture. I'm making it as ugly as it is. Um, And I wanted her to be able to hear that. So I did it. I didn't ask for forgiveness. I just said, that's all I have to say. And I hung up. Um, And when I came home, it wasn't like hugs and kisses. Um, But she was graceful enough to watch me from a distance. And when she became pregnant with our first grandchild, she said she wanted our family to be whole. And she wanted her mom to be part of that grandbaby's life. And that meant I had to be part of it. And she slowly started letting me in. And um, now she calls me for advice. She'll send me pictures, just funny stuff that the kids have done. Um, when she's having problems, we got, we got a, a teenage grandson now. And so we were driving to the airport to fly out here to grandma's house. And she said, I need you to call uh, our oldest grandson and just talk to him about something. And so she, she knew that I would have the advice and the, the wisdom that he needed to hear so that he didn't get his head ripped off, you know, by mom at that point. And so that relationship is just, it's amazing. And she wrote the foreword to my book and told people basically, hey, look, if I can read this book and appreciate this person, you don't have any right to not. Well, that is absolutely amazing. Yes, it was God. God God doesn't goof around when he does amazing. He's not like, you know what I want to do? I want to do something a little bit cool. God's like, check it out. And, and he does those things. Yeah, I've written a book myself, and my stepson is in my book, and it's about when I took custody of him and all of those things. And before I released my book or published it, I wanted him to read it to make sure he was okay with what I was fixing to do, and he still has not read it. So I'm always giving him a hard time. I'm like, yeah, it's that book you're in that we talk, I talk about you in it. So if you, if you want to know, you can just go read the book. Now, listen, the important thing, has he purchased it? Uh, no, he got it okay. free. And if you know how tight I am, that's a big blessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my kids were the first ones to buy that book. I was like, oh, you love me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So um, we're coming up to kind of the close of our, our time here. Jason, have you got the questions that we normally go to? Yeah, this is how we end all our guest interviews with the final four questions. Are you ready, Paul? I was born ready. I don't know what happened after that, but I was born ready. Let's have them. All right, here we go. Number one, can you name a book other than the Bible or a movie or a podcast that has changed the way you look at an area of your life? Yes. uh, My favorite non-Bible book is Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it um, is something that I use to augment almost everything I teach. Um, When I was coaching uh, high school soccer in a public school setting, I was using screw tape letters (laughs) to to infiltrate their minds. And I use it in my prison ministry. Screw tape letters, um, to me, is one of the most important books I've ever read. That's a good one. I've read it, too. It's very... Very eye-opening. Number I three. didn't finish it, guys. That book was rough on me. Oh, you didn't finish it? No, like I bought it. It's like probably my first ever uh, first ever Kindle um, purchase, and I made it through about three chapters. And I just couldn't. It, I've read it several times. I'm the same way though. With I have never finished Mere Christianity. I can't get through it. It for some reason I just get lost in the words. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Screw tape letters. I probably gave you a few nightmares, huh? <laughs> Scary dreams. Yeah. All right. Number two, if you had a blank billboard to share advice with the world, what phrase would you put on it? Uh, I would say 
that you are God's favorite. Um, and I'd probably put a preface with out of the seven and a half billion people on the planet, you are God's favorite because I really do believe he loves everybody the most. Hmm. That's awesome. And then number three is when talking about the 12 steps, what's your favorite step? I go all over the place. My license plate in California, if you want to find my car, it actually reads I step 12 because um, <laughs> I'm constantly doing my 12 step and giving back and, and going into the prisons. Um, I was always a fourth step guy because I loved that idea of writing it down. Uh, and the amends process was great. So I love those amends steps in there. For a while, I was a 10th step guy because I like that daily inventory. But I think if I was going to pick one, it would be that 12th step of giving back. Giving back. That's what it's all about. Serving yeah. up. And then the last question is, how can people reach you? Uh, people can reach me uh, through several different means. You can get a hold of me uh, through my podcast. If you go to messituppodcast.com, there's links there. Um, very soon, I'm in the process of, uh, of making my uh, publisher website for, uh, it's going to be paulpippen.com, P-A-U-L-P-I-P-P-E-N.com. And that'll be just a, a repository for all the books and whatnot that I'm going to write. Um, and then my blog, ministerofmocha.com, comes out every Monday. So I'm reachable in all those places. If you like email, um, the, uh, the easiest one to remember is bowtieguy at messituppodcast.com because uh, typically, and I'm not wearing one today, but I have 72 bow ties and typically I wear a bow tie every day. But during COVID, I've taken off from bow ties. Yeah, bow ties, man. Hand-tied bow ties. I don't wear any, no, no, no pre-tied ones. They're all, I, I tie them myself. You think you could teach a one-handed guy how to do that? <laughs> yes, yes, because I can do it one-handed. Absolutely. <laughs> how about that? I've seen people tie their shoes one-handed, and um, that's just something I've never dove off into and tried to learn. But the, when I first started occupational therapy, when I lost my hand, a doctor showed me how to do it himself. He had two hands, but he showed me how to do it with one. And I was like, yeah, that's just I'm not biting that off. So I just tie them and slide them on. When I was in seventh grade, I had contacts and the lady who showed me how to put in my hard contacts had a hook and she pulled it out. And I was like, and she said, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to use the other hand. Well, all right, Jason, I think that brings us to another one. Paul, we want to thank you for coming on and being on the show with us. Um, what an awesome testimony of what Jesus has done in your life and how you're using your story to give back and to give back to so many people in so many ways. So thank you for all that you do and best of luck with you and your podcast and your book that is out and can they get that now on Amazon? The, the, the book is on Amazon as we speak. Uh, if you search Paul Pippen, P I P P E N, and then the book is called Still in Beta because I'm a nerd and I haven't been sent to gold standard yet. I'm uh, still in beta testing. Um, you can get it there on Amazon Kindle. Uh, the paperback should be coming out next week. So by the time you hear this, hopefully the paperback's out and hopefully Apple Books has it. Uh, that's a process that's uh, happening as well. So it should be all three of those areas. Awesome, man. Yeah. All right, Jason. That's it, man. Uh, I guess that brings us to the end. We're closing out. I'm Roger. Jason. We're signing out of here. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics. Soberholics.